Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for joining us again on ADH TV. As I keep telling our friends, it's free. You can watch it whenever it suits your inclination. Live, middle of the night, middle of the morning, <laughs> middle of the day. It's all there. All the interviews and all the editorials. And don't forget, Fred Paul will be here after me at nine o'clock, Monday to Friday. An excellent mind and some challenging ideas. Plenty on tonight. I mentioned last night the crisis in state governments. Could the New South Wales government be in a bigger mess? The deputy leader of the Liberal Party, Stuart Ayres, has resigned. I'll come to that in a moment. But I do not know how the New South Wales Treasurer and Energy Minister, the bleeding heart lefty Matt Keane, survives. This is the bloke who criticised pre-selections during the last federal election. He was an endless critic of the Morrison government, yet was a member of the Liberal Party that formed that government. Anyone else would be expelled. Yesterday he was at it again, criticising New South Wales Premier Perrottet's treatment of the sacked minister, Alini Patinos, as opposed to the, at that time, not sacked Deputy Leader Stuart Ayres. A journalist on Monday tweeted her concern about the perceived double standards applied to the two ministers. Her tweet said, and I quote, the perception amongst women, something very rotten in New South Wales government, swift, decisive action against a woman accused over the possibility of unsafe workplace practices, and yet the Barillaro Ayres situation, double standards, women have long memories, especially when it comes to vote, unquote. Keane, the New South Wales Treasurer and Energy Minister, bleeding heart, climate change disciple, retweeted a response to the journalist's tweet, exclaiming, oh my God, yes, thank you for pointing that out. Utter disgrace. Why isn't he sacked? Instead, he argues there's now an official ban on fat thumbs in my office. In other words, oh, it was a mistake. This is white anting of the worst possible kind at a time when my information is the same person, Matt Keane, is trying to rally the numbers in the New South Wales Parliamentary Liberal Party to challenge Perrottet for the leadership. Well, then today, the big story that the deputy leader of the Liberal Party and the Minister for Enterprise, Investment and Trade, Tourism and Sport and Western Sydney, Stuart Ayres, according to media headlines at the centre of the Barillaro issue, Stuart Ayres, as announced by the Premier, resigned. He's resigned also as Deputy Leader. When announcing this at a press conference today, Premier Perrottet did himself no credit when he repeatedly failed to acknowledge that Stuart Ayres, from the get-go, has denied any wrongdoing. However, the New South Wales Premier said he'd received a briefing from the Secretary of his department in relation to parts of a draft report commissioned by the Premier on the Barillaro matter. The Premier argued that the parts he had seen, quote, raise a question. Now, this is extraordinary. Note paragraph three. I've just shoved that up. We'll leave it on the screen. Note paragraph three. Raise a question as to whether Mr Ayres has complied with the New South Wales Ministerial Code of Conduct, unquote. But at no point has the Premier explained wherein lies the breach. There it is up there. 
It's an extraordinary media statement. In paragraph three of the Premier's statement, we're told that Ayres is gone because parts of the draft, quote, raise a question as to whether Mr Ayres has complied with the New South Wales Ministerial Code of Conduct. Raises a question. To be fair to Mr Ayres, shouldn't we answer the question before seeking his resignation? But then have a look at the final paragraph, which says, quote, a further review will therefore be undertaken to determine if Mr Ayres has complied with the code, unquote. Hang on. This bloke has lost his job, his deputy leadership, his ministerial role, role in critical portfolios because of a question over an unspecified breach of the ministerial code of conduct, yet there'll be a review as to whether he actually complied with the code. I understand from insiders that the code in question is section five relating to directions to a public servant. I can assure you that has not been breached by heirs. Indeed, today, in this long-running saga, the investment New South Wales boss, Amy Brown, gave evidence to the upper house that she was the decision maker in relation to Barilaro, that she was the employer, that she signed the contract, and that any discussion with Minister Ayres about the role, according to Amy Brown, was, quote, initiated by me. And in relation to the award-winning global executive, Kimberly Cole, who lost out on the role, Amy Brown said today she didn't think Cole was, quote, quite right for the role. Stuart Ayres has always insisted the final decision belonged to Amy Brown, the public sector head of investment New South Wales. I'll tell you something. This is a consequence of government being run by very inexperienced people who frighten at the first sound of grape shot and are terrified by some media headlines. You've heard my views previously about Stuart Ayres. In various roles, I've had to work with him, uh, external to the government, of course. He is one of the most capable people in politics, federal or state, that I have met. And I've always found him to be scrupulously honest and fastidious about detail. So who knows where this now will end? I have been talking, of course, about crises in Canberra. Tonight, I'll look at another, the housing crisis. I can assure you it is infinitely worse than anyone in government is prepared to let on. But news today that Metricon, one of the country's largest home builders, will slash almost 10% of its staff to counter the headwinds plaguing the construction sector. And as with most things, the crisis owes much to the appalling policies of government. I'll also speak to the very bright Senator from, from South Australia, Alex Antich, one of the real hopes in the Liberal Party, on an issue I have previously raised, but about which there is no discussion, the trusted, I love that word, the trusted digital identity bill, which you can't trust. Yes, you've heard correctly, a centralised government-managed identity verification system where the government will give itself the power to collect all this information about us from anywhere, wherever it can get its hands on it. And what happens then? We'll also hear to David Maddox in Britain with the latest on the race for the Prime Ministership between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, both of them interestingly promising to slash income tax rates. So it's a crowded night tonight. Plenty on. And remember, email me if you've got something to say. Alan Jones at ADH.TV. You're watching ADH.TV. I mentioned in my introduction that the great Australian dream of owning your own home is dying out. Key workers who drive our cities, police officers, teachers, nurses and firefighters can no longer afford a house in our capital cities. 
In relation to Sydney's housing crisis, like most crises facing us, whether they be education or energy to name but two, the housing crisis is a consequence of an epic failure of governance at every level. Today we learn, as I said, that Metricon, one of the country's largest home builders, is going to slash its staff by almost 10% because of the headwinds plaguing the construction industry. Yet the Prime Minister and his government are talking about a voice or an absurd energy bill that'll pass through the Parliament this week with the potential to send costs even higher. Nonetheless, in the last 12 months, the construction industry has copped it. Supply chain disruptions, skilled labour shortages, skyrocketing material costs, extreme weather events. So, ProBuild, Privium, BA Murphy, Condev, ABD, Waterford Homes, Pivotal Homes are amongst the construction industry's casualties of the past 12 months. The result is suppliers, small business and tradies are owed significant amounts of money and they've got no future income. It is Homelessness Week. Homelessness Week. It's hard to say, isn't it? And I note today that Julie Collins, who's the Federal Minister for Housing and Homelessness, is arguing that 116,000 Australians on census night in 2016 were homeless. She rightly says it's a figure that should shame us as a wealthy, prosperous nation. From the language of the Albanese government, there is no indication that addressing this crisis is a priority. I'm not the only one who is saying that most of the crises this country faces are a consequence of government. You will remember during coronavirus, I argued that the draconian measures that were taken, locking down everything, crippling the retail, hotel, leisure, hospitality and commercial sector, all were overreactions. Well, the construction industry copped it, as you know. Remember in New South Wales and Victoria, shut down for two weeks. The blunt reality is that low to middle income earners, I'm sorry, have no hope of home ownership. Add to all this the fact that we have to open our borders again so there'll be a flood of post-pandemic immigration when we already have a critical housing supply shortage. So affordability will get worse. Let me cite this. Australian cities have not built enough housing to meet the needs of our growing population. We have just over 400 dwellings per 1,000 people, which is amongst the least housing stock per adult in the developed world. Australia has experienced the second greatest decline in housing stock relative to the adult population over the past 20 years. All states and territories, except the ACT, had less housing stock per adult in 2016 than they did in 2021. Cost is a phenomenal issue. Research indicates that land use planning rules, all that bureaucracy, add up to 40% to the price of a house in Sydney and Melbourne. Why shouldn't, therefore, housing affordability, housing supply, key worker accommodation, social housing, affordable rent, why shouldn't they dominate political debate? Instead, we talk about the voice and a republic and bloody carbon dioxide emissions. Honestly, the developer who's trying to build housing accommodation in the suburbs and the regions has got to pay levies for infrastructure. He pays for the roads, the parks, the guttering, the local services. That's to the state government. And then, quote unquote, developer contributions collected by councils, tens of thousands of dollars add on to the price of the home. Sydney and Melbourne are amongst the top 
half dozen most expensive cities in the world when comparing housing prices to average incomes. Let me say this, there's a hundreds of multi-million dollar development applications, hundreds of them, which would generate thousands of homes and jobs are stuck in the New South Wales planning system alone, as the Productivity Commission calls for major change. Which brings me strangely to the dismissal of the New South Wales Minister this week, Alini Patinos, whose portfolio covers the role of the New South Wales Building Commissioner, one David Chandler, who's given notice of his resignation, and that's a good thing. He must not be reinstated now that the Minister has gone. His bully boy tactics in relation to people trying to do a job in the housing industry have no place in the appropriate answers to the housing crisis. In June, a leaked video of this same building commissioner, Chandler, saw him telling builders he'd given banks, quote, an informal list of certifiers, unquote, which has led some, quote, finding they're unemployable, unquote. Well, Minister Patinos, now sacked, launched an internal probe amid concerns that Chandler had misled the parliament when he told the New South Wales Parliament that his role as a regulator didn't include recommending particular certifiers. The video suggests otherwise. But the point is this, we need, of course, a building commissioner to maintain standards in the industry, but we don't need in this environment with a critical housing crisis, an industry which can't get on with its job because of Big Brother standing over it at every turn. The threats to certifiers is only one example. The same threats, I am advised, are made to developers and financiers. No one will say it, but I will. In New South Wales, at least, the construction industry lives in fear of speaking out. They fear retribution. Under the Building Commissioner Chandler, they felt they were treated like criminals. Some players referred to as grubs. The building industry is the golden goose that lays the record stamp duty revenue egg. It's about to fall over in a way that has never been seen before. And sadly, that means that the great Australian dream for so many Australians will fall over with it. Look, I'm joined by the Senator from South Australia, Senator Alex Antich, proof of the fact that there are very good people in the Liberal Party in Canberra, but a lot of the good ones don't get a Guernsey. This is the man, remember, who tied the bureaucracy in knots when he asked a simple question to the head of the Federal Department of Health, a professor no less, albeit a woke one, Brendan Murphy, about how he would define a woman. Remember that? Senator Antich is a 47-year-old graduate of the University of Adelaide. He is the first Australian senator of Serbian descent. His father arrived, it's a great story, from Yugoslavia in 1957 and eventually became director of thoracic medicine at Royal Adelaide Hospital. Alex Antich has been an outspoken advocate of freedom and conservative values. Unfortunately, a bit rare in the Liberal Party today, and that, in my view, is a central component of their failure. The last time we spoke, we ran out of time on this issue of a trusted digital identity bill. But just by way of background, Senator Antich has splendidly argued in the past that as a result of coronavirus, Australians have lost trust in their institutions through the relentless incursions into their lives and their liberty. He's argued that these incursions were cruel and unnecessary, 
and failed to address the concerns of Australians who value, his words, the fast evaporating tenet of freedom of choice, unquote. Like me, he thanklessly condemned two years of coronavirus paralysis, quote, his words, in which we were told to accept QR codes, density limits, border restrictions, and a loss of medical autonomy, unquote. He reminds us that the COVID vaccines were supposedly voluntary, but they then became a prerequisite for work, which cost livelihoods, devastated families, undermined trust in governments and the medical establishment. Arguing these positions shouldn't be unfashionable talk for the Liberal Party, but it is. Is this man on the opposition front bench? Of course he's not. Remember, in all the draconian response to coronavirus, the public had no say. They were bullied into submission. Remember all those nauseating press conferences, terrifying us, hysteria, alarmism? But it was a Liberal government in Canberra allowing all this to go on. Now there are fully vaccinated people with boosters in hospital with coronavirus. It's unfashionable to say so, but in all that alarmist talk, we weren't told the truth. Get the vaccine, you'll be okay. Surrender your freedoms. Well, here in Alex Antich is a man dedicated not to the principle of essential freedoms, but to the practice of them. And hence this trusted digital identity bill. Senator Antich, thank you for your time and your advocacy in the defence of essential freedoms. Now we've got this trusted digital identity bill. What the hell is it? Yeah, well, thanks, Alan. Look, it's, it's, a, it's a really curious piece of legislation, the status of which is, is yet to be seen in the new parliament, but you can rest assured it's, it's coming back. It's actually a bill that was started under the previous Liberal government, and uh, where it came from is a very, very curious question in itself. But it emerged, it was uh, chewed through the bureaucracy, and ultimately it's a piece of legislation which at this stage is designed to try to link together all the government services like Medicare, you know, MyGov, the driver's licences, and give it one... ID. So every Australian would have one ID number um, under which all of their information would be held. So all of that sounds all right. It's pitched as voluntary. Um, it's what comes next that worries me, Alan. And I, I say that because we have seen two years of being told one thing and something quite different comes out the other end of the pipe. So I think this has got some real problems. We don't know what Labor are going to do with it yet. They, they presumably are thinking about it. But I'll, I'll put my money on the fact that what will come out the other end of that pipe will be something much worse and Absolutely. much more draconian. So just in layman's language, Alex, we're talking about a centralised government-managed identity verification system. So government would collect all this information about us from anywhere it can get its hands on it. And what happens then? Yeah, well, ultimately, I think that's where it goes. At the moment, it's pitched along the lines of it won't be that. It will be government services, you know, as I said, MyGov stuff, Medicare stuff. But, of course, it's also the framework is there. Once it's built, um, the, the concept is that there will be a centralised access point which banks can ultimately get hold of or retail yes, service providers. Yes. Who knows where that data will ultimately end up? And who knows where it will be collected from? We've seen in recent times places like Bunnings and Kmart getting into trouble with these facial verification cameras that are going around. Like We are now entering the age of digital surveillance. And I'm really worried that this bill if it comes out anything like it previously was, is going to be the, the facilitator of that system, almost a social credit style system mm. like they see in China. Mm. And just, you know, in terms of the things you we're all talking about, freedoms, I mean, where is our freedom when government has extraordinary access to private 
and personal information. I mean, as I understand this, all the information that a government could possibly attain about a private citizen would go into one database. So government would be at the centre of all our lives, all our online transactions. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's very likely to end up that way. As I said, at the moment, it's, it's not pitched in that way, but in the moment, it's pitched as a voluntary thing as well. And we know how that starts. That started with vaccinations being voluntary, you know, digital passports in a, in a vaccine passport form. They were voluntary as well. And look what ends up happening. See, the thing that really worries me about this, Alan, is where did it come from? People mm. don't seem to have ever asked this. this. I didn't ever ask for it. I'm sure you yep. didn't. But the World Economic Forum has asked for this multiple times. And this actually is steeped mm. in that World Economic yep. Forum Great Reset language, great talking reset. about rebuilding the economy post-COVID. So my fear is that what is being built here ultimately will end up is exactly as you say. Everything you do online gets called into a great big hoover. Uh, and then ultimately, who knows what, what's done with it? We don't know. At the moment, you know, it may be nothing and it may be very secure. But there's a whole host of problems that once upon a time libertarians in this country would have been up in arms about. Mm. And now people seem to be shrugging their shoulders like, oh, well, what does it matter? You know, I, see, like, I like the convenience. But see, Alex, I mean, without you, we would know nothing about this. There has been no discussion, certainly not in an election. Uh, the people have been told absolutely nothing. As you say, I mean, you're a senator with some scholarship behind you and you don't even know where it comes from. And yet they're talking about the digital identity system would be voluntary. What the hell does that mean? Yeah, well, at the moment it means it's voluntary, but let's cast our eyes down the line, um, you know, five years, two years, 10 years, whatever you like. Oh, uh, we well, know after what we've been through in the last two years, eh? After what we've been through very shortly, we know how quickly that turns around. But you can well imagine a, li a, a life in the future where your banks require you to have this digital ID ready to go. Yes. And they can get data from all over the world to work out what you've been doing online. Do you spend too much money on retail? Or perhaps it'll be part of this push for a climate emergency. You know, perhaps perhaps this digital ID ultimately will be used to make sure you don't buy too many tanks of petrol or too yes. many steaks at the supermarket because we're in a climate emergency. We you just see, don't know. And the pro See, I just, I mean, I'm just thinking, hearing you speak, I mean, if democracy, this is an old fashioned concept, isn't it? But if it's of the people, by the people, by the people, by the people, for the people, tell me anyone watching us tonight who would trust any institution to have this, all this detail about them, racial, ethnic origin, political opinions, religious beliefs, sexual orientation. Could we name 10 people watching us tonight who would agree that an external entity should have access to all that information? Look, I'd be, I'd be staggered if we could, if it's explained to them in those terms. And one of the things I think we're seeing increasingly in politics now is the rush to get these things through quickly yes. sometimes yes. before people get an idea what's going on. I think that's a little bit of the case here. I think that people, if they had more of a grasp on where it was going, we're all living in busy times. So people can't get across the detail as easily as they can. It has been out to consultation. But, you know, when I was in, the, in the, the, the real world, I was never really across what was in consultation on a government website. So, you know, I think there is this problem with people understanding too late what we're talking about. Um, you know, and I think there's a global push for this. This is happening in many countries across the world. And the key factor in each one of them is the World Economic Forum, which is pushing this digital Absolutely. identity, digital one economy world, future. One world government. I am very concerned. One world very government. Concerned. And I mean, what's to stop a future government from changing the policy about who should have access. I mean, the Correct. digital identity profile, it could become a requirement
for every online transaction. And if you haven't got this, well, I'm sorry, we can't serve you. You can't have access. Mm. I mean, seriously. That's right. That's right. And look, you only have to look at what happened in Canada recently with the truckers there and people that were out mm. protesting in many instances had their bank accounts frozen as a result of that. Now, imagine that on a bigger, badder scale where, you know, you are giving someone access to all this information. This will be a target for hackers if it, if it proceeds yep. down yep. that path, a yep. target for hackers provides potentially all the information that anyone could have wanted. All the dictatorships of, of the years gone by could only dream of this kind That's of information. It. That's now, it. We just have to be very careful that it doesn't mm. turn into that kind of system. I mean, you, This you, is going to be hard to beat. I think it'll get up. Yeah. I mean, you have written, Senator Antich has written, and I quote him, the most authoritarian regimes in history could not have dreamt of having access to such vast amounts of information about their citizens. But, but Alex, the bill says this is all to help us, help us. It's always presented that way, isn't it? This is a convenient method for verifying our identity online when you're having transactions and for working with governments helping you. Hello, we've heard that a thousand times. I'm the tax man, I'm here to help you. Yeah, that's right. And look, ultimately these things are sold on safety, and convenience. And, and, you know, as I've said many times before, I think we've become all too keen in this country to sacrifice liberty at the altars of those two tenants, safety mm. and convenience. Mm. You know, it's pitched in terms of cyberbullying, knowing who you're dealing with and all those sorts of things, which are great. But this issue of having this massive database, potentially, of information about people all across the country, yep. that can only ever be misused and hacked as far yep. as I'm concerned. Absolutely. And just coming back to an earlier question, but phrased differently, of the people watching us tonight, can you think of anyone you know who would be prepared to sacrifice all of these freedoms for the sake of convenience? I would have thought Australians want less government in their lives, not more. Well, I would have thought and I would have hoped that the experience of the last two years would have drifted people into that framework. Look, I don't know. I can't see it. You can't see it. I think there are people out there that, that always... I think Aussies have historically thought their governments are there to help. Uh, you know, the American system wants people to not trust their governments. They're much more cynical about it, obviously, for cultural reasons. I fall more into that bracket, I have to say. I want the government out of my life as Absolutely. much as possible, and I know you do too. So uh, I'd be staggered if anyone who had really was across this would, would be wanting it. Absolutely. I agree entirely. Listen, great to talk to you. And uh, keep us posted about the progress of any of this because, as you say, we've got these big world bodies like the World Economic Forum. They love this notion of a centralised framework for digital identity. I mean, this is just a determination, I think, to allow government to run our lives and to keep tabs on us. And I believe the people watching us tonight say, this is the last thing I need. We've had a gutful of government. Alex, you're doing wonderful work. Thank you for your time with us. And we will talk again. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate it. There you are. And all you Liberal Party supporters out there, you see there are people with talent in the Liberal Party. This is one of them. Uh, South Australian Senator Alex Antich. Look, I must say there's no joy in the news that an Indian Ocean phenomenon has been declared, which means we can face serious wet weather for large areas of Australia for the rest of the year. We're told that a fierce double whammy weather system will lurch across Australia this week, which in some areas will bring exceptionally dangerous weather conditions. Big waves, hundreds of millimetres of rain, flash flooding and gale force winds are on the cards. And it's a slow moving system. It could last all week. I agree with you. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. We've had enough, haven't we? Well, however, triumph for Australia continues. There was some genuine excitement in Birmingham overnight at the Commonwealth Games, not just relating to the continuing joy that the young man Kyle Chalmers 
has prevailed in the face of media nosiness and invasiveness. An outstanding 100 freestyle swim, 47.51 for gold, the world record 46.91, but looking to Paris, there is a Romanian teenage whiz kid, David Popovici. He is the current world champion in 100 and 200 freestyle. He's 17, younger than Kyle Chalmers was when Kyle won in Rio. I guess there is no time for standing in the swimming world because last night, Birmingham time, we had the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Emma McKeon, with 12 Commonwealth Games gold medals. That's a record. But she's the Olympic 100 freestyle champion, and she was beaten in that very event, the 100 freestyle, by the 18-year-old Queenslander who attends St Peter's College in Brisbane, Molly Grace O'Callaghan. This is a big new name on the scene. And look, we love, we love the young lady who is the GOAT, but I'm not too sure that she'll ever be able to beat this Molly O'Callaghan again. Molly won the gold. The courageous Shana Jack was second and Emma, Emma McKeon, the Olympic champion third. The other lady to watch is this sensational 15-year-old Canadian, Summer McIntosh. Look at the smile on her. Now, tonight our time, she lines up in the 400 freestyle heats for an eventual clash with the great Ariane Titmus. Ariane will have a work cut out, I can tell you. At the World Championships recently completed in Budapest, the 15-year-old Summer McIntosh won gold in the 200 butterfly and the 400 medley. She was narrowly beaten by Titmus in the 400 freestyle. At Birmingham, she's already won gold in the 200 medley and the 400 medley. The name is Summer McIntosh from Canada. She won't be 16 until August 18. Well, excitement levels were high on the track. The athletic events began. Nina Kennedy, the 25-year-old pole vaulter from Perth, has just won bronze in the World Championships. She's now won gold in Birmingham in very, very blowy conditions. It was tough for the pole vaulters. But the excitement was on the track when Rowan Browning, who served notice at Tokyo in the World Championships when he won his heat there, remember that? Only to be run out in the semi-finals. The 24-year-old from Sydney was outstanding last night in the 100-metre heats on the track. He ran 10.10 for the 100. Looked very, very good. It's to be hoped he doesn't tie up in the semi-final. And the 28-year-old 800-metre runner, Catriona Bissett from Newcastle, was really gutsy in qualifying for the semi-finals in an excellent time of two minutes, 00 0.40 seconds. In one other sporting story, remember we had all that hoopla last week about Manly players deciding to wear a pride jersey in the rugby league clash against the Roosters. Seven players declined. The rugby league boss, Peter Volandis, in relation to the seven players who were stood down or stood themselves down, said they were, quote, human beings, unquote. You have to respect the players' religious and cultural beliefs, unquote. I agree. Funny that, though, isn't it? I remember Israel Folau expressing religious and cultural beliefs. He was banned from everything, including Mr. Land Mr. Volandis' rugby league. Of course, Peter Volandis would say Israel Folau was never blacklisted from rugby league, but rather the administration was waiting for a club to try to register a contract. That is nothing but escapist babble. If the Manly players should have their religious and cultural beliefs respected, as I believe they should, so should Israel Folau. That didn't happen to Israel. Hypocrisy at work again. 
Well, to Canberra, the climate change bill is set to pass. The Greens, who want a 75% emissions reduction target by 2030, will not be blocking the bill for a 43% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions. The Teals have got their fingers in it as well. They've put forward amendments. Peter Dutton has rejected the bill, and so he should. Let the government go over the energy cliff on its own. I note the response by the Greens leader, Adam Bant, to Peter Dutton's decision to oppose the bill. Bant described the Liberals as irrelevant. Well, we'll wait and see. The push to net zero emissions will prove, in my view, the most irrelevant initiative taken by any government in recent times. For one simple reason, it's not achievable without putting the national economy at unacceptable risk. Mark my words, Labor, the Greens and the Teals will be forced to admit that the gap between their ideology and the nation's energy reality will prove to be such that the call for energy via fossil fuels will prove to be deafening. My view is that will occur sooner rather than later. Well, let's go to Britain in fascinating times. The Tory leadership has really hotted up, as they say, and it's fair to say it's got a little bit ugly. Let's go to our good man, David Maddox, the political editor of The Express Online. Look, I've got to tell you, viewers, this bloke writes splendidly. You can read him at express.co.uk, and I don't care if I embarrass him, but I've got to say again to you, you are getting this from the horse's mouth. I don't know of anyone with better contacts within the British Conservative Party than this man. So he's with us. David, thank you for your time. You've provided some interesting insights um, here. A Penny Mordaunt, whom many thought would fight out the leadership with Rishi Sunak and was pipped at the post by Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary. But in what you've described as a major coup, Penny Mordaunt is now mm. backing Liz Truss and in fact introduced her on the hustings in Exeter describing her as the hope mm. candidate, and then these other beaten candidates, Suella Braverman, Tom Tugendhat, and the Chancellor, Nadim Zahawi, are backing Liz Truss. So the question, David, does this suggest that Liz Truss is well on the way to being the Prime Minister? Uh, I think it does, actually. Um, there's nothing like being perceived as the expected winner for people to pile in behind you, uh, which I think is... The, the main explanation for, for Penny Morden to back Liz Trust because those two were at each other's throats for a good couple of weeks. In, uh, in fact, there was a really nasty briefing war against uh, Penny in particular uh, from Liz Truss's camp, allegedly, should say. But uh, it was, uh, you know, so the fact that there's some sort of rapprochement there suggests that uh, Penny uh, thinks that's the best, the quickest way to get a big job in the next uh, government. That's absolutely frankly. right. And I, and I, assume, <laughs> so I, just... I assume some sort of deal has <laughs> been done in that I was just about to say that. <laughs> when you see that person as being the likely winner, get on side so that you can get a Guernsey. Yeah. But you have quoted a Redfield and Wilton poll where Liz Truss is the mm. first Conservative politician since March who would, according to the poll, beat the Labor leader, Sir Keir Starmer. Now, polling papers mm. have gone out, haven't they, David? And as we've said often, the result will be known by September 5. But what about this mob, Techni UK? Now, they're a nationally mm. and internationally recognised high-quality opinion polling outfit. Mm. 
Are you saying that a private survey, and by the way, I'm always a bit suspicious of private surveys. Are you saying a private survey no. by this Techni UK reveals Sunak nine points ahead of Liz Truss on the Brexit issue? So how big is the Brexit issue in determining who will win this contest? Well, that's an interesting one because uh, the Brexit issue was uh, enormously important for the MPs when they were deciding the final two. And the fact that Liz Truss is a, is a Brexit convert uh, and uh, has really gone from, has gone from this kind of ultra remainer position back in 2016 to being what some people describe as a Brexit superwoman in uh, the last couple of years has uh, really kind of galvanised a lot of support, especially on the right of the party. Uh, and it was just interesting that Rishi, who is now perceived as a kind of Brexit in name only by a lot of his colleagues, uh, but voted to leave the EU and supported that campaign in 2016, is still more trusted amongst members, according to that poll. Now, I should just explain, Techni are actually our um, express, uh, Express's uh, polling partners at the moment, uh, we do uh, weekly surveys with them. And this was uh, this leak, uh, it wasn't to us, it was actually to the Times, uh, was the work they do to kind of uh, to help form the basis of their own decision making and uh, on the surveys they're doing to, you know, to have the yeah. kind of foundational yeah. work. Yeah. Uh, and it involved 800 members. Now, uh, whether that's actually representative of the members or not is, is another question. But it still put Liz ahead, Liz Truss ahead in virtually every other category, yes. including who they'd rather have as prime it, minister. It, it, so, it, is, it, is, um, it is extraordinary, yeah. though, isn't it, that Liz Truss, who was a Remainer, and yet all the Brexiteers mm. have swept behind her, and Sunak is arguing mm. that he put his career on the line to back leaving the EU yep. in 2016 when he turned down Prime Minister Cameron's demand to sign up to the Remain campaign. You have spoken, have you, Dr Rishi yeah. Sunak? I have, yes. And uh, in fact, I mean, my, my relationship with Rishi goes back to that very day. I, I first met him for a cup of tea in, in Parliament in an area called Portcullis House. Uh, and, and, you know, literally an hour before that, he'd received a call from Cameron and said, come over to Downing Street. And he said, it's not worth me coming over. I'm not going to waste your time because I'm supporting leave. And actually, uh, for me, that always marked him out as, as a, a man of principle on these things. And he has done some work on kind of Brexit benefits, not least the kind of free ports initiative, which was kind of tax-free zones around ports. And, um, you know, so I, I've always thought it was a bit unfair that he's been characterised as yeah. some sort of remainder in disguise, yeah. I, I have to say. I actually wrote a piece on that uh, saying it was a lie, essentially. But he's clearly not picked up there. He's, he's clearly not convinced his colleagues mm. at all. But um, can, can, I just convinced a member. can I just ask you this, though? Has Sunak messed up his nest by raising taxes, even though both candidates are now campaigning to reduce tax. I mean, the bloke who headed up Margaret Thatcher's policy unit, and I know mm. you've written about this in the 1980s, Sir John Redwood, who I say to our viewers, he's, mm. he was a leadership candidate on almost every leadership election in the years past, but he's attacked 
Sir John mm. Redwood, Sunak over his pledge to slash income tax by four mm. pence in the pound, saying nobody would believe him because, quote, he imposed a new social care tax, online tax, excess profits mm. tax. He, urged, he upped national insurance, made many income taxpayers pay a higher rate and hiked the business tax rate by 31%. He says, Sir John Redwood says, as a candidate, he tries to rebrand as a tax cutter. David, that's pretty damaging mm. stuff. Well, this goes back to your earlier question. Is Brexit a, a big issue? The big issue in this campaign is tax and the fact that we have the highest level of tax in 70 years. And who's to blame for that? Rishi Sunak, because he was Chancellor. Also, actually, I have to say Boris Johnson. And I think I've said this to you before. One of the main reasons that Boris is uh, no longer Prime Minister or is on his way out of being Prime Minister is that his colleague, the MPs, yeah. didn't think that his policies were conservative yeah. enough, especially no. on tax. No. And, and, uh, and Liz Truss has, has grasped the, the tax nettle and said, look, let's... Let's cut taxes, go for growth, and put some money in people's yep. pockets because it's mm. their money. And well, just, that let me just go to that. I agree with you. I agree with you because Boris as Prime Minister was an entirely different person from the Boris who used to write for The Telegraph and so on. But where are we on this Boris Johnson petition? Boris, it's called <laughs> Boris on the Ballot Campaign. Have lawyers representing the yeah. former party treasurer of this Lord Critus, who I must admit in 2007 was named the richest man in the City of London, then worth about £860 yeah. million. Pounds. But the Boris on the ballot mm. campaign want Boris Johnson on the ballot paper. Will they succeed? Uh, it feels unlikely, but I, I wouldn't rule this out. I mean, uh, as you say, Lord Critter has a lot of money to throw at this. And it's clear that the members of the Conservative Party are really, really angry about what happened, essentially, with this cabal of MPs overturning the result they did in three, uh, three years ago, and 14 million voters giving Boris uh, a mandate three years ago, and, and they're not happy. It was interesting, so polling came out just last night uh, from YouGov uh, of Conservative members, which suggests that if Boris was on the ballot, he would easily beat Truss and Sunak amongst party members. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, and, uh, uh, and this is why, uh, I mean, I've written about this. I wouldn't rule him out coming back. I think there's a good chance he may come back mm. in, a, in two or three years' time. Mm. Uh, but they do have, you made that it. point, and David. David, they, the do, they do have a valid point, don't they, that mm. Boris has been chucked out by a couple of dissident people in the political party. But mm. here is a bloke who was voted in by thousands of members just three years ago, yeah. then won a mandate from 14 million voters in 2019, the biggest Tory victory since Margaret Thatcher in mm. 1987, dumped by Conservative MPs, but not by the members and not by the nation. Now, have you been exactly. told by a spokesman, have you been told by a spokesman for the Conservative Party that the letter and the petition haven't yet been received at Conservative Party headquarters? There is some confusion because Lord Crudus says he's actually got receipt of uh, his letter being received, but uh, the Conservative Party headquarters are um, denying that they've received it. But um, uh, we, we, we will wait and see. But the, the key thing is that on Friday the deadline runs out yes, yes, for, yes. for yeah. them to uh, acknowledge right. it and take so when action. You say, 
Sorry, uh, so when you say uh, that, in which case it could end up in the courts. That, I was just going to ask that. So when you say the deadline, Crudis has given them a deadline. We want an answer by Friday. Yes. Now, when Friday comes, what are you? You're the Nostradamus. I mean, are they going to take legal action to seek to have Boris's name put on the list along with Truss and Sunak? I, I think they are. And uh, whether, whether they succeed or not is another question, but... Uh, I've spoken to Lord Crudus uh, a few times now, and he is, he is determined to do this and to see this through. So I wouldn't be surprised if early next week there's an application to the High Court. Extraordinary. OK, now look, we're going to go, and I ask you every week the same question. You're our Nostradamus. Between now and next week, therefore... What do you think is going to happen? What is your judgment? You've talked to all these people about Boris Johnson still remaining a leadership candidate. Hmm. I think I still think it's unlikely. I think that the uh, vote between Truss and Sunak will go ahead, uh, but I think that there will be implications to to this bring back Boris campaign. I think it will force some democratisation within the Conservative Party and some accountability to its members rather than allowing the MPs to just uh, stitch things up all Absolutely. the time. Absolutely. But it's, um, my, I mean, my guess is that actually the reality is by the end of next week, Liz Truss will be leader. It won't be official till 5th of September, but mm. uh, the, the votes are going, the ballots are going out. Uh, it's pretty clear she's the, the preferred candidate and most of the votes will be going uh, will be going in quite quickly. So, in effect, she she's the, the contest is going to be won by the end of next week. All right. Well, we'll sort that out next Thursday, next Wednesday night when you talk to you. Great to talk to you, though, David. You write splendidly, by the way. Congratulations and wonderful insights. David Maddox, M-A-D-D-O-X. You just go to express.co.uk. And David is the political editor of the Express Online. See you next week, David. Cheers, Alan. Thanks. Marvellous, isn't it? Wonderful insights. He's right there in the centre of the action. Look, without pumping up our tyres, it was months ago that I argued that we were not entitled to have faith in the judgement of the Reserve Bank or its Governor, Dr Lowe. It was months ago that I identified what he said in November last year, and I quote, it is still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024. Yet when Lowe made those statements last November, as you know, economic activity was accelerating, housing prices climbing, commodity prices going through the roof, price pressures emerging everywhere. There should have been interest rate increases. Dr Lowe and his Reserve Bank, with about 1,342 full-time equivalent employees, had their eyes shut when the housing market took off astronomically. Innocent and unsuspecting Australians were seduced by cheap money. I said months ago on this program that the credibility of the Reserve Bank and indeed many economists who were then silent was underwater. You see, this is the problem with business, isn't it? Business, economists, bankers, they're all woke. They're frightened to stick their heads up. Gutless is the word. Where were they when the Reserve Bank was transparently wrong? There are nine people on the board of the Reserve Bank. Five are business representatives. Four are economists. What homework were they doing? None. Now, those who were silent then are clamouring that the RBA boss owes Australians an apology. Mainstream media running front page stories 
criticising the handling of monetary policy. Where were they months ago when Lowe was making the ludicrous predictions which I highlighted? It was last year that I reminded you months ago that Lowe said, I still struggle with the scenario in which rates need to be raised next year. Not impossible, but I would say it's extremely unlikely. Well, here we are now where the cash rate has jumped by another half a percent and borrowers in Struggle Street are feeling betrayed. They believe the Reserve Bank. The Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, is saying he's staying out of the debate. No, Treasurer, get your hands dirty. Be on the side of those who are now facing crippling mortgage pressure. New data shows 1.84 million Australian households are now feeling the pinch. Are you listening, Dr Lowe? And all you woke economists who had nothing to say last year, 46,000 homeowners in Victoria, almost 16,000 in Queensland, 63,000 in New South Wales, mortgage stress. That is, simply and sadly, they can't pay the mortgage. To be fair, I've said this before and I don't mean to be harsh, borrowers should have had the common sense to know that cheap money wouldn't last forever. But now we've got this unprecedented succession of interest rate hikes, which will dramatically slow the economy, drive up unemployment with no immediate impact on inflation, such that inflation, that is increased prices and increased borrowing costs, are putting pressure on all household budgets. But now the same experts who couldn't see the train crash coming, that's last year, are saying, oh, the Reserve Bank might have to start supporting the economy. That is, it's time for the Reserve Bank to back off, press the pause button and wait to see what's going to happen following the fastest string of interest rate increases in the last 30 years. I've said before, raising interest rates is a blunt instrument. How could we have any faith in what the Reserve Bank is saying? If their job is to keep inflation within the target set in 1996, 2 to 3%, then the Reserve Bank has failed and the punter knows it. Petrol's up, food prices are up, electricity, gas, the mortgage, all Australians, 26 million of them, know this every day. The Reserve Bank has just found out and it's now belting us with the highest successive interest rate increases in 30 years. And the governor says they'll get inflation back to 2 to 3%, quote, over time, unquote. What the hell does over time mean? And he says forecasting inflation will be, quote, around 3%. What does around mean? Three, five, four? I repeat what I said months ago, and now my comment, comments have become a chorus within media and so-called experts. This mob have failed in their job. They didn't move quickly enough. When the Reserve Bank of New Zealand stopped printing money in the coronavirus response last July, we kept dishing it out until February. When the Reserve Bank of New Zealand stuck up interest rates last October, we didn't start until May this year. As the formidable and reputable economic commentator Terry McCran, to whom I'll speak tomorrow night, has pointed out, it was mid-July last year, mid-July, that the governor of the New Zealand Reserve Bank said that it aimed to, quote, tighten monetary conditions. Mid-July. Not normalise them, tighten them. It was going to get inflation back to its 1% to 3% range. Even now, our Reserve Bank and its failed governor say they'll get inflation to 2 to 3% over time. Look, the Reserve Bank board plainly has lost its way. Its only job with thousands of staff is to get inflation back 
to what was agreed upon by Peter Costello and the then RBA Governor Ian McFarlane in 1996, a 2 to 3% inflation target. They failed. And they failed the hundreds of thousands of borrowers who are now suffering. I said months ago they shouldn't have a job. We have to be able to do better. For Treasurer Jim Chalmers to say, our job is not to try to influence the Reserve Bank or second guess their decisions. That is wimpish talk, Treasurer. You've got a Reserve Bank board and a governor who have failed Australians. They were wrong last year. We've got no proof that they aren't wrong again this year. The Treasurer, you can't be worried about the sensitivities of the precious elites on the board of the Reserve Bank. Your concern has to be with the millions of Australians who've been misled and dudded. Well, before we go, and don't forget Fred Paul is coming up straight after this, but I mentioned yesterday plenty of noise from China over the potential visit of the US House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. Indeed, amazingly, only days ago, President Biden and his Chinese counterpart Xi apparently spoke in a phone conversation reportedly for two hours and 17 minutes. You mean Biden can talk for two hours and 17 minutes? I guess Xi was at the other end just checking that Biden was still on this planet. <laughs> Who knows what was said, except the suggestion has emerged in relation to Taiwan that, quote, those who play with fire will eventually get burnt, unquote. The Chinese authorities seem to be saying that Washington will, quote, bear the consequences if the trip goes ahead. Well, Nancy Pelosi has landed in Taiwan. I should then make this point at the outset. We've never been able to establish the links between Joe Biden, his son Hunter, and Chinese authorities, and whether the Bidens enjoyed, as many suspect, commercial benefits from relationships with Chinese business and government at the highest level. But all reports from Washington continually tell us that Mr Biden prides himself on a close relationship with Mr Xi. One wonders. Well, Pelosi has arrived in Taiwan, the highest ranking US official to visit in 25 years. To be fair to her, she's long challenged China on human rights, including travelling to Tiananmen Square in 1991, two years after China crushed a wave of democracy protests. It's hard to know which way China will move here. Their foreign minister says America is playing with fire on the issue of Taiwan. Pelosi wrote in an opinion piece published by the Washington Post on her arrival in Taiwan that, quote, we must stand by Taiwan. Now, China and Taiwan split during a civil war in 1949, but China claims Taiwan as its own territory and has not ruled out, as you know, using military force to take it. However, one wonders what disconnect exists in the Biden administration. They didn't approve of the Pelosi visit. They didn't urge Pelosi not to visit. And they've assured Beijing that the visit doesn't signal any change in US policy towards Taiwan. Which leads to the fairly obvious question, does it not? But we've asked it over and over again. With a cognitively declining Biden in the White House, who is actually running the show? I should say my own view is that on this issue, China, in the words of Shakespeare's Macbeth, is, quote, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, unquote. But where things might be down the track, who knows? Fred Paul's coming up next. Thank you for your company tonight. I'll see you tomorrow night on ADH-TV. Good night.